0: in world history at which we probably came the closest we've ever been to nuclear war. This was a political crisis that took place between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And as I say, very nearly kicked off the Third World War, which would have been a nuclear war. It is unbelievable and terrifying to learn just how close we came to nuclear armageddon in late october 1962 as both the americans and the soviets engaged in uncompromising brinksmanship dug in their heels and, and refused to yield to the other uh, the threat of nuclear war was was never closer than uh, than you know that it was back then so what happened was this the soviet union deployed nuclear weapons to their ally cuba which of course could then launch those nukes at the american eastern seaboard given cuba's proximity to the us Um, And this deployment was made in response to the United States' 1961 failed invasion of Cuba, the Bay of Pigs invasion, and also because the US had nukes within striking distance of Moscow in in Italy and Turkey. So US President John F. Kennedy had to respond to the Soviets uh, deploying nukes that could be aimed at, you know, Washington and New York. And so he demanded the Soviet First Secretary, Nikita Khrushchev, to get rid of them. Now, Khrushchev refused, of course, and Tensions escalated to the point that nuclear-capable planes and submarines were zipping about. Nuclear nuclear missile launch facilities were put on high alert, and nuclear war was potentially just minutes away. As this crisis continued, the U.S. had established a naval blockade that prevented further weapons deliveries from the Soviet Union to Cuba. They had reconnaissance planes flying over Cuba every couple of hours, taking photos of the the missile facilities and their state of readiness. Uh, And on the other side of the fence, the Soviets and their Cuban allies were sending vessels towards the blockade. They had surface-to-air missiles trained on those planes. They had nuclear warheads ready to go on, uh, you know, uh, ground-to-ground missiles that could have devastated uh, American cities ready to go in Cuba. And uh, as these two superpowers teetered on the brink of war, uh, tense and, and, and difficult and, and absurdly high stakes negotiations took place between the USS and the USSR behind the scenes. And look, you know, I don't really want to spoil the ending of today's episode, but the fact that you're listening to this, you know, you're listening to this episode comfortably on Spotify or iTunes or whatever else while you're sitting in your nice car or on your comfortable couch or while you're you know, running through a pleasant green park. Um, the fact that you're doing that will probably tell you that the negotiations were ultimately successful. Because if they hadn't been, you would instead be listening to me tell this story. You know, huddled around a campfire in the middle of an irradiated wasteland while we pick bits of roast cockroach out of our teeth. We uh, we talked about nukes last week. Uh, we even mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis in that episode. Uh, and they are at the very core of this crisis. Uh, the reason not only that it came about, but also why it was such a big deal. So be sure to have a listen to last week's episode if you haven't already, uh, especially if you want to learn more about the the terrifying but fascinating weapons at the core of today's episode. But having said that, let's get to this one, uh, have a chat about the Cuban Missile Crisis and learn just how narrowly we dodged a Third World War and a nuclear armageddon. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1962. This is, of course, the year that the crisis took place. One of the parts of the Cold War where tensions were at their highest between the U.S. and the USSR. And we turn our attention to Cuba, the island nation in, in quite close proximity to the, uh, to the southeast of the United States, around 160 kilometers or so from Florida. Now, Cuba had been a a pretty big part of the tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, more broadly speaking, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, as early as 1958, when Fidel Castro had led the Cuban Revolution to overthrow the U.S.-backed Batista regime. Uh, We talked about that in episode 144, get across it. Um, And then, of course, Castro went on to nationalise U.S. business interests in the country, which the United States did not like. After this nationalisation, Castro... Uh, in order to sort of defend his nascent uh, revolutionary state and, uh, you know, his interests after having pissed the United States off, he made overtures to the Americans' primary international rival, the Soviet Union, who were more than happy to have an ally at the doorstep of the US. As a result of this, in 1961, uh, the CIA secretly backed an invasion of counter-revolutionary Cuban exiles who attempted to land in Cuba and overthrow Castro. This invasion was called the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was a total disaster for the US, not just a defeat, but an embarrassing one as well, when they were discovered to be meddling in Cuba's politics in this way. It was quite a humiliation on the world stage for the United States. But of course, this isn't the only flashpoint for Cold War tensions at the time. Berlin, famously, was also a focus of Cold War conflict for more or less its entire duration, Uh, But things were particularly bad in 1961. This is the the year that the wall went up. The Soviet Union issued an ultimatum to US-led Western forces in West Berlin, telling them to withdraw from their half of the city uh, because the Soviets had been trying to gain control of West Berlin for years. They'd blocked Western access to their half of the city. They'd rolled military hardware right up to the border, all sorts of stuff. But the Western Allies, they didn't back down. They stayed in Berlin. And ultimately, this led to the partition of the city and the construction of the wall. But that's another story. But what I'm trying to say here is in 1961, as we head into 1962, tensions are very, very high. And this, right, is the backdrop against which the Cuban Missile Crisis takes place. The United States was drawing ahead in the nuclear arms race. As we move from 1961 into 1962, Khrushchev is growing increasingly concerned about American military dominance. Now, the Americans thought it was the other way around. They thought the race was a lot closer than it actually was. They were concerned, thinking that they were behind the Soviets, right, uh, when it came to nuclear weaponry, the so-called missile gap. And this was a, a quite, quite a contentious political issue. Uh, Kennedy campaigned as part of his politi- uh, presidential campaign. He, he, he campaigned about how he would bring the United States back to the forefront of military supremacy and, and close the missile gap. When the reality was that the Americans were actually laboring under this misapprehension. The the United States had around 27,000 nuclear warheads, while the Soviets had around 3,600. The United States had nearly 2,000 intercontinental ballistic missiles, while the Soviets had just a dozen or so. Right. And on top of this, the U.S. had nuclear capable submarines, uh, more nuclear bombers than the USSR. And we just they just completely spanking the, the, the Soviets and more or less every axis outside of conventional ground forces where they were, you know, admittedly outnumbered number two to one. But conventional ground forces aren't much good against thousands of nukes. And Khrushchev knows this now, you know, he's lying through his teeth. He's off bragging about how the Soviets are making nuclear missiles, quote, like sausages. Um, and the Americans are falling for it. The the Americans are thinking that the the, the missile gap favors the United the the, uh, the the Soviet Union. However, of course, the reality is very different. The Soviets are way behind the Americans. So Khrushchev decides that he wants to uh, he, he wants to rebalance the scales a little bit here, and so he elects to deploy nuclear missiles to Cuba. And he did this for six reasons altogether. And you know, with some of the background that I've given you here, uh, you might be able to understand what what his thinking was in taking. This, you know, rather aggressive stance on attempting to, uh, you know, reassert the, the military might of the Soviet Union. Number one, the Soviets were that far behind when it came to ICBMs, inter- Intercontinental uh, Ballistic Missiles. That if they wanted to be able to reliably nuke the United States, they needed to use shorter range missiles. And obviously, they couldn't. They could. They could put uh, uh, short range missiles on the other side of the Bering, Bering Sea and technically attack the United States. They could attack Alaska, but they wouldn't be able to land missiles with any sort of reliability because of their lack of ICBMs in major US population centers, and so Cuba was the perfect place to put shorter range missiles, given the fact that it was so close to the United States. Secondly, Khrushchev wanted to test the waters in muscling in on US-influenced regions. If he could get away with putting nukes in Cuba, he reasoned, then he could probably get away with pushing the Americans out of West Berlin as well. If the, if the US would sort of just roll over and accept his, uh, his you know, further encroachment into, uh, into their sphere of influence, putting nukes in Cuba, Khrushchev thought, well, I can probably get him out, I can probably muscle him out of Berlin as well. Thirdly, Castro's regime in Cuba was, was quite concerned about more US imperialism. They were concerned that there would be further invasions, more activity like the Bay of Pigs invasion. And they wanted help from the Soviets in building up their defensive capabilities. Now, the Soviets, for their part, were happy to oblige. This is something Khrushchev was more than happy to, uh, to support here. Nothing quite like, you know, bristling with nukes to make people stop wanting to invade you. But fourthly this, and related to the third reason here, this would deeply strengthen the ties between the USSR and a critically important ally in Cuba. Having an ironclad communist ally on the American's doorstep would be a profound strategic usefulness for the Soviets as the Cold War continued. So these two reasons are linked. First of all, Cuba wanted, you know, Cuba wanted military support and, and, you know, hardware from the Soviets. And Soviets wanted to give it to them because it meant that it would as I say, strengthen the ties between the two nations. Fifthly, if, if that's a word, the United States already had nukes in range of the Soviet Union. It had missiles in Turkey and Italy. We talked about uh, first strike capability last week. Khrushchev was very concerned about the the nuclear capability of the United States to, uh, to launch a first strike against uh, the Soviet Union. And so he wanted to strengthen Soviet second strike capabilities by putting nukes in direct range of the U.S. It would further add to, you know, the idea of deterrence, mutual, mutual assured destruction. We talked about this last week. Finally, Khrushchev believed Kennedy was weak. And this was a very important part of Khrushchev's reasoning in deploying these weapons to uh, Cuba, After the botched Bay of Pigs invasion, Kennedy came off as as young and inexperienced and indecisive, and Khrushchev thought that he could take advantage of this. He thought that he'd be able to steamroll Kennedy, deploy the missiles, ignore any ineffective fuss that Kennedy might make about it, and chalk it up as a win for the Soviets because the Americans just would accept the missiles as a fait accompli. Now he was wrong about this. This last reason, very, very wrong about that indeed. But Kennedy, at this point, hadn't sort of, you know, hadn't made uh, much of a name for himself as an international diplomat and statesman, and therefore Khrushchev looked at him particularly in the wake of the failed Bay of Pigs invasion and said, "I can, I can, I can, you know, treat this bloke like a doormat. It's not going to be an issue." And so, in May 1962. Soviet nuclear technicians quietly travelled to Cuba and began to covertly oversee the construction and deployment of missiles in Cuba. Missiles that would then go on to be armed with nuclear warheads. Now, this entire operation was carried out in the strictest of secrecy. Uh, Hardly anyone was actually told what was going on as, as personnel and equipment was sent from the Soviet Union to Cuba... The the purpose of this operation, what they're actually trying to achieve, was was kept from more or less everyone that, that worked on the project itself. And this policy of deception and denial uh, wasn't just internal; it was external as well. And it is something of it's it's something of a cornerstone of of, of Russian military culture. Really, this this idea, this deception, denial, misleading people, it's known as maskirovka. And um, as I say, it's been a big part of Russian military culture both before and after the crisis. I mean, Maskarovka is still part of modern Russian tactics. Even today, you can see it with their ongoing aggressive war against Ukraine and, and the misinformation they're spreading about that. But what were they hiding back in 1962? The Soviets were building missile facilities across various locations in Cuba. They were bringing missiles in to fill those facilities. They were sending tens of thousands of troops in to guard them, as well as, most importantly, they were shipping nuclear warheads over to arm the missiles. And all of this was done, as I say, with the strictest of secrecy. A real It was a real cloak and dagger, well, not a cloak and dagger, cloak and missile operation, I guess. Um, with the Soviets and the Cubans doing everything they could to hide what was going on. However, rather obviously, they couldn't hide it completely, not when they were shipping missiles that were as big as trucks halfway across the world and tens of thousands of people to either, you know, set up, operate or uh, or guard these missiles. So U.S. intelligence services realised that something was up. in In August 1962, their spy planes spotted surface-to-air missile sites and investigated further as to why these were being built in Cuba. And and further analysis suggested that these surface-to-air missile sites were typically the ones that would be built by the Soviets in protection of nuclear missile facilities. And as the U.S. continued to investigate exactly what was going on in Cuba, uh, the idea that the Soviets were deploying nukes to Cuba became more and more plausible based on the intelligence that they were gathering. There were reports uh, from within Cuba itself, not just, you know, with photos taken by spy planes, reports from within Cuba uh, of trucks carrying enormous cylinders covered with canvas driving in the dead of night. Uh, with, with these convoys so big, the trucks were so big that they couldn't take corners on some of the Cuban roads. So obviously, they drew a lot of attention as they were backing up and doing 15 point turns around sharp bends. And word of this got back to the, to the Americans who came to the sinister but ultimately correct conclusion that nuclear missile launch sites were being constructed in Cuba by the Soviet Union. So the US, as you might imagine, they began to kick up a stink about this. They demanded an explanation from Cuba and from the Soviet Union just as to why huge missiles were being deployed to Cuba. But the Soviets just denied everything. Or they lied through their teeth. Either the missiles didn't exist or if they did, they were defensive missiles designed to stave off further US led invasions. But this didn't add up because defensive missiles weren't so big that they couldn't be maneuvered around street corners on the back of a truck. Missiles that large had to have offensive capabilities. And they bloody well did too, let me tell you this. The USSR had shipped in their R-14 intermediate-range ballistic missiles, which are capable of travelling 4,500 kilometres. These missiles could, you know, hit not just Washington and New York, as I mentioned before, but Chicago and even Los Angeles. I mean, the range of them was so great that the Soviets could have nuked northern Manitoba in Canada. But the USSR they denied and deceived and misled, they stuck to their policy of Maskirovka, they did everything that they could to hide the fact that they were sending nukes to Cuba. But finally, on the 14th of October 1962, a US U-2 spy plane managed to capture clear photographic evidence of nuclear missile facilities in Cuba. Evidence that was further verified by the intelligence from a double agent working from the United States, a bloke whose name was Oleg Penkovsky. Penkovsky's story was it's really, really fascinating. His intelligence allowed the United States to confirm the construction of nuclear missile sites, right? Not just offensive missile sites, nuclear missile sites before these sites became operational. And this was massive. It allowed the United States to get on the front foot before the nukes were actually online. It completely changed the course of the crisis because if Penkovsky's intelligence hadn't confirmed the identification of Soviet nukes, things might have gone very differently. The United States would have had to wait to figure out what was going on. The negotiations might have gone a little differently if Cuba was able to point active nuclear missiles at Washington from the get go. Penkovsky's story, as I say, is is, is really interesting, but I'm, I'm very sorry to say he didn't make it out. Uh, he was discovered before the crisis was over, he was arrested and, and he was later executed for treason, but he did play a pivotal role in uh, making the Cuban Missile Crisis what it was. Anyway, these images were brought to President Kennedy along with the confirmation that the missiles were indeed nukes and Kennedy responded by establishing the 14-man Executive Committee of the National Security Council, otherwise known as XCOM, to figure out just what the Americans' next move was going to be. Now, the first thing that they considered was a full-scale invasion of Cuba to overthrow Castro and remove the missiles. And I have to say, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were very, very keen on this idea, just going and... Feeding them the left and the right straight away, but Kennedy was worried that this would lead the Soviets to invade West Berlin and would ultimately escalate the already, you know, highly strung tensions of the Cold War, it would escalate them even further. So instead, XCOM discussed airstrikes on the missile facilities, but that too would be tantamount to a declaration of war, a war that would, given the existing tensions, probably become a nuclear one all too soon. XCOM debated back and forth talking about exactly what approach America would take. And it's only been in recent years that the recordings of the XCOM uh, meetings, the secret voice recordings that Kennedy made, without even telling the other people in the room with him that he was recording everything, it's only recently that these recordings have been made public. And they certainly change the perception of more than anyone else, President Kennedy and his approach to the Cuban Missile Crisis. You're probably going to learn a thing or two about President Kennedy today. He, he came out of the Cuban Missile Crisis smelling of roses. This bloke, it really, I mean, he used this crisis to entrench his reputation as an international wheeler and dealer. He is broadly considered one of the United States' greatest presidents uh, and a lot of that was to do with the way that he he stared down the Soviets during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But as this episode continues to unfold, you'll learn there's a little bit more behind the story of President Kennedy and his uh, his approach to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is uh, again been been made public uh, in a very explicit sense thanks to the release or the the publication of these XCOM tapes. Anyway, <clears throat> the crisis continued. To, uh, to unfold, to to develop, to escalate, and is generally considered to have begun properly on the 16th of October, two days after Kennedy first saw these, uh, these images of the missile sites. And it was on that day that uh, Kennedy's brother Robert, the Attorney General, contacted Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin to ask about these missiles. Now, Dobrynin insisted on Khrushchev's behalf that <clears throat> there would be no ground-to-ground missiles or offensive weapons placed in Cuba. Now, of course, this was an out-and-out lie. They were in the process of setting up these ground-to-ground offensive weapons in Cuba, and the Americans didn't believe a word of it. So XCOM now really had to turn its attention uh, as to what the formal American response would be now that the, the Soviets were, you know, demonstrably just lying through their teeth about this entire situation. On the 21st of October, XCOM decided to establish what was essentially a naval blockade of Cuba. Except it wasn't called that. And I mean, because a blockade, technically speaking, under international law, is an act of war. And Kennedy, as we've already talked about, didn't want to escalate things in that way just yet. Instead, using a bit of mascarovka of their own, the US called it instead not a blockade, but a quarantine as they were only blocking the transportation of offensive weapons and nothing else. They were still allowing other ships in and out if they didn't have any uh, any uh, you know nuclear facilities or nuclear technology on them. So a very deft bit of hair splitting there, but that was the line that they took. And U.S. forces were moved to DEFCON 3 as warships were deployed to block any ships attempting to sail to Cuba with orders to search them for weapons or weapons-related equipment. And the United States did this. With the support, broadly speaking, of the rest of the West. The United Kingdom, Canada, France, West Germany all backed this plan and the next day on the 22nd, Kennedy made public the situation in Cuba in a televised speech.
1: This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.
0: He then went on to outline what the Americans' response would be.
1: To halt this offensive build-up, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port where they're found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. This quarantine will be extended if needed to other types of cargo and carriers. We are not at this time, however, denying the necessities of life as the Soviets attempted to do in their Berlin blockade of 1948. And he then
0: laid out the American demands to end the crisis.
1: I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. He has an opportunity now to move the world back from the abyss of destruction by returning to his government's own words that it had no need to station missiles outside its own territory, and withdrawing these weapons from Cuba, by refraining from any action which will widen or deepen the present crisis, and then by participating in a search for peaceful and permanent solutions.
0: Needless to say, the Soviet Union did not comply with Kennedy's demands, and they instructed their ships to ignore the blockade altogether. Kennedy postured further by hinting at the chance of airstrikes and and even an invasion were the Soviets not to withdraw the weapons, which only raised the tensions further. And in the next two days, both sides refused to back down. The Soviets wouldn't withdraw their missiles, and the Americans insisted that they would take military action if the missiles remained behind. So this this is classic textbook brinksmanship here. This was a defining feature of Cold War tensions. Both nations knew that if they were to enter into a proper sustained conflict, nuclear war was all but unavoidable and with it of course the mutual assured destruction that was was part and parcel of full-scale nuclear warfare so while both the us and the soviet union refused to blink the world held its breath and on the 25th of october an emergency meeting of the united nations security council was held to deal with the crisis where the US publicly displayed the aerial photos of Cuban missile sites and directly challenged the Soviet ambassador to the UN, Valerian Zorin, to admit that these missiles were indeed offensive nuclear weapons. Zorin refused to respond to the Americans, and as the United States had already well and truly invested themselves in this pissing contest, they escalated things even further. With the Soviet Union refusing to back down, the Americans decided to raise the stakes. U.S. Special Air Command was put on DEFCON 2, the highest DEFCON before an all-out actual nuclear war, and U.S. nuclear bombers circled in the air, ready for immediate deployment in case war began. And it got even worse than this, if you'll believe it, as the next day Kennedy came to XCOM in agreement with the, G- the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he said an invasion of Cuba was the only way forward to remove the missiles from the doorstep of the United States. Other members of XCOM, however, they talked him into waiting at least a little bit longer to seek a diplomatic solution. Although, as Kennedy had made explicit explicit public statements promising not to let the Soviets get away with these Cuban missiles, he couldn't wait around forever. There was a lot of political pressure on him to act. But behind the scenes, right, while all of this, you know, saber rattling is going on around the world from a pub- in, a, in, a, in the public sphere, behind the scenes, negotiations between the United States and the, and the Soviets were underway as a diplomatic comp- compromise was desperately sought to avoid a nuclear Armageddon. Now, as I say, publicly, it was a stalemate. The Soviets refused to remove the missiles and the U.S. refused to accept them remaining in Cuba, and as they inched towards nuclear war... Latest intelligence suggested that some of the missile facilities were now operational and we actually have a very interesting piece of behind the scenes information now that wasn't widely known back then. Castro was actually pressuring Khrushchev to nuke the US. He thought that a preemptive strike was the only way to prevent a US invasion of Cuba. Castro was so ready to Nuke the United States. He had that uranium fever, let me tell you. It was frothing for a nuke. And if it had been up to him, we probably would have ended up with the, with the nuclear war kicking off. In later years, Castro expressed his regret for thinking along these lines during the crisis. He he said years later, <clears throat> after I've seen what I've seen and knowing what I know now, it wasn't worth it at all. But at the time, he was putting immense pressure on Khrushchev to just launch nukes at the United States at this point. Anyway. The US is gearing up for an invasion of Cuba, complete with nu- a nuclear attack of their own against the Soviet Union if it sought to stop them. But behind the scenes, attempts were being made to resolve the crisis peacefully, as I mentioned. An American journalist had been covertly approached by a Soviet diplomat, saying that Khrushchev was willing to remove the missiles in exchange for a promise not to invade Cuba. The journalist passed this uh, offer on to, uh, to the, the Kennedy administration, who had to obviously verify the offer as being legitimate, which it was. And so XCOM began to talk about perhaps accepting this as a diplomatic compromise, while outwardly, of course, continuing to beat their chests over the missiles. And this is the, this is the idiotic thing about the whole crisis. The fact that there was all this pig-headed saber rattling in the public sphere, both nations digging in their heels and seeming to thoroughly enjoy the pissing contest, while behind the scenes, both the Americans and the Soviets, they're, they're, they're panicked about the start of the Third World War. These days, there's this general conception, particularly in the United States, that that Kennedy was determined and uncompromising, was full of grit and steel as he stared down the Soviets. But what Kennedy did in a lot of these XCOM meetings was just make it worse. Just as the Soviets did, he escalated the conflict with his political fixation on removing these missiles from Cuba, something that we'll, we'll come to towards the end of the episode and explore in greater depth. But... In these diplomatic negotiations, it has to be said, the posture that the United States had taken, this very aggressive posture, you know, threatening airstrikes and invasion, they had the upper hand. They, they, While Khrushchev was attempting to hold his ground and keep the missiles in Cuba, the Americans were the ones that continually raised the stakes by with these threats of military force. And Khrushchev started to lose his nerve. He was worried about the situation that he himself had helped to create as this Nuclear war loomed on the horizon. And that was one of the reasons that this offer had been extended, this, this, this compromise had been extended to the United States through that American news journalist. And also one of the reasons that Khrushchev then on the next day, on the 27th, uh, made a public radio broadcast offering another compromise, a different compromise, one that was a little tougher on the Americans he would order that the missiles in cuba would be removed if the united states would promise not to invade cuba just like the the clandestine offer that had been made the day the day before but in addition to that he demanded that the united states remove its missiles from turkey and italy as well now on the face of it this seems like a fair trade right the italian prime minister Amin, uh, amintore fanfani He expressed his approval of the idea. He said, you can take the nukes out of Italy, no worries, use that as a bargaining chip while you're you're trying to, you know, head this conflict off. However, the president of Turkey, Semel Gürsel, he did not like this plan at all. He didn't want Turkey's position weakened. He, you know, given their proximity to the Soviet Union, he opposed the idea of removing the, the missiles from Turkey very, very strongly indeed. However... Here's the most interesting thing about the situation with these missiles in Turkey. Obviously, Khrushchev's looking at them and saying, well, we'll pull our missiles out of, uh, out of Cuba. If you pull your missiles out of Turkey, that's a fair trade. But unknown to the Soviets, these, Turkey, these missiles in Turkey, these Jupiter missiles, they were called, they were almost obsolete. The United States had been planning to remove these missiles anyway, as they'd effectively been replaced by new warheads arming nuclear submarines. They were seen as militarily obsolete, almost. So you think this is a a, a clear win for the Americans, right? They pull out weapons that they already wanted to anyway. They get rid of the Cuban, the the missiles in Cuba anyway. And therefore, any knee, they can make this promise not to invade Cuba because they don't need to anymore with the missiles being gone. But... It wasn't the slam dunk that it might have seen. There was a problem. If the US were to you know, take this seemingly very simple and straightforward exit from the crisis by agreeing to Khrushchev's proposal, they would pay a very heavy political cost with NATO. The, the idea of pulling these missiles out of Turkey just like that unilaterally, would would damage the united states standing within nato it would destabilize the you know the political alignment of the nato states and might even put the u.s offside with nato more broadly speaking so it wasn't a decision that the u.s could take lightly the 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 public undermining of turkey on the world stage would be something of a humiliation not only to the u.s but also to their entire you know the entire all of their allies within nato so while this compromise was being considered by XCOM, Kennedy sent his brother Robert once again to meet with Dobrynin, the, uh, the the Soviet ambassador, and slowly but surely a deal began to come into focus. The US maintained to the Soviets that they could not publicly withdraw the missiles in Turkey, but they could agree to. They they could promise not to invade Cuba. That was fine. That was well and truly on the table, especially if the Cuban missiles were removed. But if the USSR wanted the missiles removed from Turkey, that part of the deal had to remain secret. And so with these negotiations ongoing with the United States it, with its position on this compromise firming up, late on the 27th, the US sent a response to the Soviet Union saying that they would give a guarantee not to not to invade Cuba, that they would lift the blockade, sorry, they would lift the quarantine if these missiles in Cuba were removed under UN supervision. And in addition to that, they also made another an unofficial a clandestine undertaking to remove the missiles from Italy and Turkey on the condition, however, that that part of the deal remained secret so the U.S. wouldn't lose face internationally. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that at this point, with this offer from the U.S., an end to the crisis was in sight. But in fact, what happened was the world, in the wake of of, of this counteroffer from the United States, the world came closer than ever before to nuclear war for two reasons. While waiting for a a response or acceptance from from the USSR, two things took place that brought us, again, as I say, closer than ever before to a nuclear Armageddon. First of all, the Americans didn't know whether Khrushchev would actually accept their offer. And if he didn't, an invasion of Cuba was seen as the only possible way to proceed. This was the last compromise that the Americans were willing to offer. And after this, it would be an invasion. Kennedy was in too deep. He couldn't back down. He couldn't compromise further. He would painted himself into a corner with his brinksmanship. And as a result, US forces were put on high alert. Airstrikes were prepared. Invasion plans were drawn up. And the next morning might very well be the beginning of the Third World War. And the second thing that happened was completely separate to all of this, and long-time listeners of half Assed History will remember very well what it was. On the 27th of October 1962, the US blockade detected a Soviet submarine. And so they began to drop depth charges at this submarine in order to force it to surface. Little did they know that this Soviet submarine was armed with nukes, and with the submarine too deep to communicate via radio with Moscow, its captain decided that war must have already begun if they were being attacked, and that they needed to launch a nuclear attack upon the US. And it was only due to the steadfast refusal of a Soviet commander aboard the submarine, Vasily Arkhipov, that the submarine didn't fire a nuke, And begin the third world war. And you can hear all about that story in detail as well as other nuclear close calls in episode 52. Get across it. Between the 27th and the 28th of October, then, it is safe to say that the world came perilously, terrifyingly close to global thermonuclear war. But luckily, despite everything, we dodged it. Anyway... The American response to Khrushchev's offer was relayed to Khrushchev early on the 28th, and he accepted it immediately. Khrushchev is often portrayed as the man who blinked first in this conflict, and maybe that's true, but his blinking saved the lives of millions, and perhaps billions of lives, as the crisis now finally began to de-escalate. The US was sticking to its threatening line, responding positively to Khrushchev's proposal, while also making it clear that the other alternative was war, And so Khrushchev announced on the radio that an agreement had been reached and the crisis finally began to de-escalate. Kennedy responded by confirming the compromise and reaffirmed the Americans' commitments in Kennedy's words not to interfere in internal affairs within Cuba. Uh, Never mind that, you know, the CIA kept trying to assassinate Castro well after the crisis was over, episode 144, get across it. But with the agreement reached... Tensions finally began to ease, and US spy planes confirmed in the coming days that the Soviets were indeed dismantling the missiles in Cuba. The Cuban Missile Crisis was over, the looming threat of nuclear war began to recede, and the world breathed a sigh of relief. The US blockade was lifted a few weeks later when the last of the missiles were confirmed to have been sent back to the USSR, and later on in 1963, the US stuck to the commitment that it had made to remove its missiles from Turkey, quietly disassembling them, which, as I'd mentioned, was something they wanted to do anyway. So, very neatly done. Or was it? I have to say, not everything is as it seems with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the popularly told story that the US won the standoff after the USSR blinked, it doesn't quite cover it. We'll come to that in a moment, but for now let's examine the direct aftermath of the crisis. The end of the Cuban Missile Crisis brought about a marked decline in the tensions between the US and the Soviet Union, and nuclear disarmament, the nuclear disarmament movement picked up a fair bit of momentum with things like the 1963 Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. The two superpowers, realising the need for much more direct lines of communication in situations like this to seek diplomatic outcomes rather than, you know, kick off the Third World War, they set up the Washington-Moscow Hotline, which is often known as the Red Telephone, Uh, despite the fact that it has never actually been a telephone, let alone a red one. Uh, It actually started out as teletype, uh, was later replaced with fax machines in 1986, and then by email in 2008, and it still exists today. Khrushchev uh, was seen to have embarrassed the USSR by backing down as part of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he fell from power in 1964, while Kennedy, the uh, quote-unquote winner, was, of course, assassinated in 1963. And finally, the Soviet disarmament of Cuba actually didn't end the nuclear threat there, interestingly enough. The Soviets, they stuck to their agreement. They took away all the missiles that they had uh, emplaced in, in, in Cuba under UN uh, supervision. But they left behind a number of tactical nuclear rockets that had been placed in Cuba. Uh, and and, th- and th- th- these rockets stayed there for almost a month after the crisis, I mean, why the Soviets had agreed to remove all their nuclear missiles? Why didn't they take their rockets? Well, the Americans never found out about them. The Americans had never found out that nuclear-capable tactical rockets had been left in Cuba that could still attack the United States, Uh, but ultimately, given just how, you know, trigger-happy Castro seemed with nukes, the Soviets decided about a month later to pull the rockets out, just in case. So there you are. The Cuban Missile Crisis brought humanity to within a hair's breadth of nuclear war, but we managed to get through it, and all too often, this is attributed to Kennedy's statesmanship. He was tough and uncompromising, he showed determination and strength, he stared down the evil communists that recklessly threatened world peace. Right? Right? That's, that's, that's what happened. The US won. Simple as that. USA, number one, all the rest of it, right? But this doesn't actually quite paint the full picture, and I'll tell you why. The U.S. was far from blameless in bringing about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Not only had they botched an invasion of Cuba that directly threatened its sovereignty, motivating Castro to cozy up further to the Soviets. The U.S. also had nukes in range of Moscow when they did so. All their objections about the Soviet Union putting nukes in range of Washington were a little hypocritical when they had already done the very thing that they had such a problem with. The USSR was was trying to balance the scales in that regard. And on top of this, Kennedy hardly demonstrated masterful diplomatic restraint. He walked into the first XCOM meeting ready to invade Cuba, remember? Kennedy had this weird fixation on Cuba. He'd campaigned heavily on the issue, and politically speaking, he had a lot riding on Cuba's position in relation to the US. Kennedy was definitely responsible for reckless escalation of the crisis. It wasn't just Khrushchev and the Soviets, as is the common conception. Finally, and perhaps most importantly of all, we come back to the missile gap. I mentioned before that the US was a long way ahead of the USSR in terms of sheer numbers of nukes, right, as well as the ability to project them. There's no doubt that the US, the US's nuclear arsenal was a long way ahead of the Soviets. However, it's not like the Soviets didn't have enough nukes to respond with a full-scale second strike, even before deploying nukes to Cuba. And a second strike, of course, would have brought about mutual assured destruction. So here's the really important bit. The missiles in Cuba didn't change the nuclear equation at all. Militarily, the nukes were relatively unimportant. The USSR was still very capable of waging a nuclear war with the US, even if they didn't have those missiles in Cuba. And even if the US enjoyed the advantage of the missile gap, the USSR was still in it with a nuclear second strike capability. Militarily speaking, the Cuban missiles, as I say, weren't that important. Politically speaking, however, those missiles were were absolutely unacceptable to Kennedy, who had more or less staked his political career on facing down the Soviet Union in Cuba. If Kennedy was seen to be soft on Cuba, he and his presidential administration would lose all credibility. They would be seen as weak. They would be seen as allowing their Soviet enemies to walk all over them. And so the Cuban Missile Crisis was not brought about because of the military necessity of the removal of the nukes in Cuba, It was brought about because of the political necessity, from Kennedy's standpoint, of him being seen as being tough on the Soviet Union and uncompromising on the Cuba issue. Hence, the American insistence on the secrecy surrounding the removal of the missiles in Turkey. Again, Kennedy couldn't afford to appear weak when dealing with Soviets. And the private agreements about the missiles in Turkey were kept private. They weren't revealed for decades afterwards for reasons that very few people understand. It would have been free political capital for the USSR to leak this. I mean, once the agreement was made, the Soviets started removing their missiles from Cuba. Kennedy threatened to go back on his word and keep the missiles in Turkey if the USSR went public with the secret part of the deal. So they had a reason to keep it secret until the missiles were actually out. But but once they'd been removed in 1963, why didn't Khrushchev... Just come out and tell everyone about this secret deal. Why Why did he accept losing so much face? Why didn't he embarrass and humiliate the United States by demonstrating that they too had blinked? The answer to that is I don't know. And not a lot of people do. Some have suggested that the Soviets didn't realise the political damage that it would do or they feared that it would cause the US to go back on their word and invade Cuba after all. But what it probably would have done was heavily destabilised NATO and, and humiliated the United States, diminishing their perceived victory during the crisis. But for whatever reason, Khrushchev just didn't take the opportunity. The US was perceived to have won. The Soviets blinked. They removed their missiles for nothing more than a promise not to invade Cuba. All too easy. And most unfortunately, Kennedy's performance, and it was a performance, entrenched a culture within the U.S. presidency of never compromising, never giving in. A good U.S. president, it's believed today, remains firm in the face of opposition, never backing down. And that's just not a good thing, in my view at least. Compromise is an essential part of politics. It's it's an essential part of life. And today, American leadership seems to regard compromise as, as, as totally and utterly unacceptable, and a lot of that is due to the perception that history has taken of Kennedy and the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. A false perception because Kennedy did indeed ultimately compromise. The world came all too close to global thermonuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis for all the wrong reasons, and we're very fortunate. To have made it out without the death of millions or even billions, not to mention the irreversible destruction of society and civilization. We found a way out, despite the sabre-rattling, the posturing, the pissing contest, because at the end of the day it was compromise that was proven to be the most useful weapon in the political arsenal. And it is bloody good that it was, let me tell you, because as interesting as it's been to tell you this story... I'm very glad I didn't do it while munching on cockroach burgers around a fire in a desolate, radioactive hellscape after the Third World War. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis and... uh I'm sort of left feeling the way that I did at the end of last week's episode where, you know, this episode is nearly an hour long and I still don't feel like I've even scratched the surface. Nuclear politics, Cold War politics, absolutely fascinating. And and maybe we'll come back to it in future weeks. But I do hope you've enjoyed uh, the last couple of weeks focusing on some more modern history. Uh, I imagine that next week we'll probably head a little bit further back in time, but... It's, it's good to get across all these different parts of, uh, of world history whether it's more recent or, or you know or, or further back so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did hope we learned a thing or two as well today anyway that's it for this week of course all the boring housekeeping stuff right now halfhousehistory.net the contact form the the, la- the link to the uh, the feeds where you can subscribe on iTunes or Android um, people are still leaving reviews on iTunes and, and, and I, I'm just so appreciative apparently you can still you can leave reviews on Spotify as well although I haven't really been able to find them but thank you to all the people who are leaving reviews and leaving reviews in real life, when you're telling your friends and family, uh, and and even people that you you know don't like or are ambivalent about, uh, thank you so much to everyone who's spreading the good word of Half hour History. If you want to do that without having to talk to anyone, I know how you know frustrating it is to have to interact with people socially. Why not buy a Half hour History t-shirt and just wear it around, and then you don't have to tell anyone about the podcast. You can do it while also uh, you know looking uh, fresh to death in uh, in the latest Half hour History apparel. Uh, that's available in the merch shop. And if you want to support the show. In a much more direct financial uh, fashion, of course, you can go to patreon.com slash history and sign up for a range of subscriber benefits and bonuses. You can get behind the scenes uh, stuff like show notes and uncut episodes and early access to episodes as well uh, if you want to get stuck into them a little bit before the, uh, The Great Unwashed. Uh, and of course you get uh, secret, not, it's not secret. It's very openly displayed what it is. It's not a secret at all, uh, but you get, yes, ex- super, ex- super exclusive secret Patreon merch. And I believe that the first round of merch has already been sent out. So uh, I'm very pleased that uh, we've got that underway and uh, it'd be great to hear back from some of the patrons as to what that merch looks like, feels like, smells like, uh, taste. No, no taste. Don't, don't eat the delicious merch, please. Anyway. That's that for this week. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the episode. Please do get in touch, the contact form on the website and send in new topics as well. As I say, we'll probably leave the Cold War for now, head back in time a little bit further next week. Looking forward to your company as we do so then, but leaving you until then with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Draconicard, who asks, how could the Cold War have happened in Cuba? Isn't the Caribbean really warm?